place it comfortably. So good morning everyone. On our third day of session, we've got a, another day to go. Um, I was just reflecting as I was bowing um, that you look outside and there's a lot of energy outside today with the wind and the, the ruffling of the water on the pond and the nature out there. And in here it's very quiet. And uh, life is often a, a matter of contrast. Um, and art is often a matter of capturing those contrasts that we see in life. And um, somehow that segues into what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about something um, which we're all experiencing as we go through session. Um, but it's not talked about very much, or at least hasn't been talked about by me for a long time. Give you some of the background to it. But what I'm talking about is samadhi power. Samadhi power is the term we use in Zen for the, that's that experience of the deepening of our meditation as we go into practice. And you can experience it to some degree when you just sit for half an hour or an hour every day. Um, but as we all experience when we do session, as the days go by, there is a quietening of the mind and everything seems to slow down. And there's a sense of going below the surface of the sea where it's all choppy and chaos and windy and we go, in, go down into the quiet depths of our being and everything sort of slows down. And... Um, uh, in, my, in my readings, James Austin, who wrote the book Zen and the Brain, he was a Zen practitioner as well as a neuroscientist, so he knew it from the, the scientific point of view as well as the personal. He referred to samadhi as absorption or absorption states. And um, spiritual insight experiences or kensho or satori as quickenings, awakenings or quickenings, so absorptions, quickenings. And he hypothesised that, based on his understanding of how the brain works, that samadhi states, absorptions, are associated with um, opioids in our brain, so kind of a narcotic, and that um, because they're kind of slow, they slowly sort of develop, you know. Whereas um, quickenings or awakenings are something that happens just suddenly, like that, and he associated that with um, uh, a neurotransmitter called glutamate, you know, which suddenly, suddenly sort of flashes through the brain. So there's neurological sort of basis for these experiences that we have and words that we can put to them to describe them. And if uh, I could just take you, the reason why I, I uh, decided to talk about this as a third talk. Um, as I, I noticed particularly last night and, and this morning, um, that uh, the samadhi that I was experiencing had deepened quite a lot um, and I was enjoying it. And so it was out of that personal experience that it came. And um, as you, when we, when we sit down at the beginning of, of meditation, we've come out of our chaotic, messy lives and then we, we suddenly start to slow down. And if you're like me, 
there is some resistance to sitting here. I wouldn't say it's very strong, but there's some, you know, and, uh, you know, sitting in, in zazen and sitting in session is, is likened in Zen to a, a snake going into a bamboo pole. It's in there and it's straight and it can't move. Mm-hmm. and uh, can't wiggle around like it does in everyday life. So going into session is like, like a snake entering a bamboo tube. And uh, we have to, the more we just surrender to being in the bamboo tube and being straight, um, then we, we kind of relax into that samadhi state. But I think with all of us going from messy chaos everyday life to here there's a transition period that occurs and uh, there's a little bit of resistance but you just kind of stay with it and you stay with it and then eventually the resistance starts to drop away and um, and what I noticed was that um, the more that a session has gone on there's a sense of wanting to get back to the cushion you know, it's not like, oh, this is something we've got to do because it's in the schedule. It's kind of like, I want to get back to the cushion. Um, and if we're producing opioids in our brain, uh, which are narcotics, maybe there's some kind of <laughs> narcotic addiction going on there as well, right? We want to get back and get our hit. But that's fine. I don't want to pathologise it. It's a good experience to have that sense of the mind quietening and deepening. And, and some metaphors come to mind to describe my own experience. It's like at the beginning of session, it's like there's a tap and it's kind of dribbling and it's spurting and splattering a little bit and a little bit of water's coming out. And then as session goes on, it's like the tap's being turned on more and more. It's just a strong, steady stream of consciousness, a strong, steady stream of experience is just flowing. And so it's flowing and it's kind of strong, is the experience of it. Or if you used uh, more of a, a natural metaphor, it's kind of like a bit of a dry creek bed with a bit of a bit of the water running through and then the rains come and the, and the creek fills up and it's really flowing and moving along at a strong, flowing pace. Kind of like that's what my experience is of the, the stream of consciousness. Um, and, it, and as it's talked about in all the books, it, it becomes a pleasant experience. Now in um, some forms of Buddhism like Vipassana, which I'm not really familiar with, they talk about jhanas, which are samadhi states, and they identify various different stages that people go through. And, and um, I've tried to read about that um, just to inform myself, but I find after a few pages my eyes glaze over and I just can't, I'm just not interested in stages because stages are just concepts, you know, um, they, and, and then people talk about stages and the concept becomes a reality and we have, and then there's this striving to go through stages. And if you look at the, the Zen writings, they, they challenge all of that stuff. Do you know what, what stages? There's no stages we go through. Mm-hmm. They're just words. But yes, you can say there's a, an ongoing process of, of deepening um, that occurs in quietness of the mind. Now, um, in, in my Zen training, 
these samadhi states were recognised first with Robert Aitken Roshi, but Robert Aitken Roshi being more of like the Kawan Rinzai tradition and influenced by DT Suzuki and so on, uh, tended to um, downplay the importance of samadhi or samadhi power. And he would often, you'd often hear him saying things which kind of poo-pooed it in a way, you know, that it's not, it's not insight, you know, it's not kinsho, it's not satori, it's not awakening. So it's not the alpha and omega of Zen as DT Suzuki referred to it. That's why DT Suzuki's books were so popular in the beginning is because it emphasised the kensho satori aspect of it. It didn't emphasise the absorption part so much, the samadhi part. And um, so within, from my experience of Robert Aiken, it was kind of recognised that's what we do in session, but it was downplayed. And he tended to criticise books written by other Zen teachers that emphasised samadhi power so much rather than insight. Um, then when Joko became my teacher, uh, Joko for different reasons was a bit down on samadhi power as well, and, um, but for very different reasons. She saw that people um, being able to go into very deep states of samadhi but it was a way of kind of spiritually bypassing all of the emotions and emotional reactions that come out of the self-centred dream um, that we act out in our life. So people could go into very deep states of samadhi during session, but they go back into their life and they're just spiritually bypassed and there's no integration into everyday life. It's just a nice... The cushion becomes then when we practice like that, it's just a nice place to escape to, right? to go into this, this little narcotic world for a while. Mm -hmm. um, but what, what's the relevance to our everyday life? So she was a bit down on it from that point of view as well. Um, and they both had good reasons in a way for saying that, but I want to look at it from a different angle. And because uh, we can get in any endeavour, in politics as well as in spirituality and then we can get into these divisions, the Rinzai school and the Soto school, and the Rinzai school emphasises this and the Soto school emphasises samadhi and which one's right or wrong or best or better mm -hmm. and all that nonsense that goes with it. Um, so I want to look at it from a different perspective. But my experience as a Zen student when I was younger in the Diamond Sangha with Robert Aitken Roshi, would see, we would see people who apparently um, had had Kensho experiences and seemed to fly through their koan study very well. And, um, and they were kind of lauded for, for being able to do that. But it was kind of strange because these same people seemed to have messy lives, you know, and um, they're very ungrounded, you know, um, or even unethical for that matter, in the way that they run their life. So how come, you know, this transformative experience over here happens, but their everyday lives are like this? That was the kind of puzzle myself and other people started to have. And, um, and Joko was quite right in saying that people can get obsessed with samadhi power and so on. 
and um, but she her teaching was very much and she wasn't so um, she wasn't so uh, flattering about Kenshaw experiences either. She referred to them as famously as small intimations. <laughs> People would, you know, come to her with their, you know, talk about their big experience they had, you know, they, yeah, it was a small intimation. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the risk is, you know, that we, we can have these experiences and instead of the cutting through, waking up out of the self-centred dream, it, it has the opposite effect, we become grandiose. We're enlightened, you know, because we've had an experience. And it's only one, I think, the, as Zen has matured in the West now, we see that these things are important, but we, we don't place the same degree of importance on these experiences we did when we first began and when we were all influenced by Philip Kaplow's book, The Three Pillars of Zen, that talked about enlightenment experience after another, and that's what we were trying to, to gain. Yes, they do happen along the way. Um, they are... They are useful insights, they're transformative to a certain degree, but they're not the, the, the be-all and end-all of practice. Well, a lot of experience when we go from our everyday lives to doing session is that we, our everyday lives compared to this, just like the outside and the inside, you know, um, our everyday lives seem messy, right? Like tangled relationships, emotional reactions, demands of other people, our demands, etc. Life is messy. That's just the nature of it. And uh, I did a Dharma talk on that recently um, called a Knotted Tangled Mess, right? Which was a metaphor for life. After on my boat I opened up some rope and it was a mess everywhere. It took me ages to unravel it. So that's kind of like a metaphor for Zen practice. Our life is kind of like a mess. Um, and yet we, we commit to unravelling the mess. You know? And when we come to session, you know, we, we commit to unravelling the mess. And then we go back into the mess again. But to be able to, to sit here for a few days and experience quietness, groundedness, embodiedness, present momentness, uh, slowing the mind down. And what it leads to is, is no thinking, or at least the thinking isn't as large and loud as what it used to be, it's, to, it's all turned down. And I want to emphasise that there is, there is a value in that. There is, is a virtue in being able to touch that place every now in our lives where the mind quietens down and we just get below all of that conceptual chatter. And I believe it, my, my belief is, I can't prove it, but my belief is, is that it's not just transitory, it's not just something that happens and then it goes again. Yes, we do go back into our lives and we don't have that same depth of samadhi, might last for a few days. Um, but I, I've used this metaphor before, it's like you put a, a cloth in dye, like in blue dye, and you put it in and you stain it, and you put it in again and you stain it, and you put it in again and you stain it. 
Till it has a deep, a deep stain in it. Every time we meditate, every time we come to session, we, we're, 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 we're putting ourselves into that dye again and being stained by the dye. And then in everyday life, it might be quite chaotic on the surface, but you, but you go through it, even though you might get annoyed and angry and frustrated at times, somehow you're in touch with something deeper there. It's like there's a still centre, is the best way I can describe it, and other colleagues of mine have described it that way too. It's like there's a deep centre that doesn't get disturbed. Even on the surface, things seem chaotic. Again, like you're just below the surface of the sea, in the depths of the sea, it's quiet down there, it's still down there. There's all this craziness on the top. When... Um, go, to back, go back to psychology and to integrate this... Um, one, one writer on psychology, whose name I can't recall, uh, writes on mindfulness, has described psychopathology, that's the modern word for suffering, or dukkha, you know, that, that psychopathology falls into two camps. Either it's, it's chaos or it's rigidity. And if you look at, say, anxiety, like panic attacks, frantic behaviour and so on, that's chaotic. Right? If you look at depression, that's often like rigidity, like slowing down, everything's becoming still. Fight flight is often like chaos, um, but, but the freeze response is rigidity. Um, psychosis, when it's like florid hallucinations, is chaos, but catatonia is rigidity. Like, so it, it takes one form or the other. And if you look at the... If you apply that to Zen practice, um, the, the whole koan system, you know, and, and the aspect of practice that um, works towards realisation experiences, Kensho experiences, it's kind of... It's, it's getting us out of rigidity you know, when we live in this conceptual world, this sort of left hemisphere dominated world, what comes with it is rigidity. And and koan practice is a way of breaking out of the entrapment of that rigidity into something which is like free, like freedom is the, is the nature of it. Um, and it goes together with creativity. That's why Zen is so closely associated with the arts, because out of that, out of that, no mind, no self-experience. Out of the, it's like out of the chaos arises creative acts. You know, not just art, not just works of art too. You know, like just creative creativity in everyday life, creative conversation, creative housekeeping, create creative relationships. But chaos is the source of creativity, and the koan system and its playfulness and its challenging of rigidity seems to draw that out, which is very important. So chaos is transformed into creativity, right? Um, the, the meditation aspect of practice, do you know, that develops samadhi power, um, it's giving us 
groundedness. That's the best side of it. You know, it, it gives you a sense of solidarity, like being centered, grounded in life. But when it becomes pathological, um, it becomes rigidity. And that's what's being addressed in a lot of the, the Zen literature. That's in metaphorical terms, but it's expressing the same thing. So um, to be a stone Buddha in Zen is a derogatory, a pejorative statement. It's like you, a stone Buddha is that person who can go into deep samadhi, right? Um, but they're just rigid. You get them into their everyday life and, and they're rigid. They're as stiff as a board. Mm -hmm. But yeah, they can go into deep samadhi. So that kind of that kind of zen, becoming a stone Buddha, is not something that we're aspiring to. That's where you go off the path. But if you think, you know, that the dukkha of our life can either take a form of rigidity or chaos. If you put meditation together with insight, then it's a transformative process, and you transform chaos into creativity and freedom and you transform the rigidity into groundedness and we need both right? we need both not this competition between one or the other if we're going to have a well-rounded practice we need both and then and then to supplement all of that um, as I mentioned I think in one of the earlier talks you know the Zen is likened to, um, well, Zen training is likened to a three-legged stool, right? So you've got insight, meditation, you know, you've got the creative aspect of it, the grounding aspect of it, and then the third one is the precepts. And, and um, as I'm writing about in a book that I've got a draft of, um, what concerns me about when you look at the, the literature of Zen it's nearly all about spirit. It's nearly all about insight, meditation, and the arts. That's that's the predominant form that it takes. There's very few books written on the precepts, and that's why I think um, the precepts really need to be emphasised as an equal part of Zen training, because this is where the other two come together. So. If you transformed your, your, your being into freedom and creativity and you're grounded, then the precepts give you, is, give you the, the guidelines of how to transform groundedness and creativity into your everyday life, right? so that you lead a good, a good life, you know. Um, that you become a person of good character, not doing harm in the world, you know, but doing good. You, that's the glue that's needed to bring the whole practice together. Yeah, you can get a benefit out of one or the other, like mindfulness was taken out of Buddhism, that's a good thing, it helps a lot of people. Um, insight that people get is a good thing, it can help them as well. The precepts also bring... bring um, fulfilment in life. Aristotle said it years and years ago that the virtuous life is a happy life and uh, we need that third component to bring it together. So in summary, again, it's a three-legged stool and we need to value all those different aspects, those three aspects of the practice to have a full practice.
and to have a fulfilling life. Thank you.